Inspiring Business Leaders, brought to you by Durham University Business School. Today's episode is supported by the Durham DBA. Durham's Doctorate in Business Administration is for senior business professionals to achieve personal growth and contribute to global business, creating new knowledge and understanding. Be part of a vibrant research community with international reach and reputation. Visit durham.ac.uk forward slash DBA for more information. Hi listeners, I'm Chris Roberts and this is The Lemonade Principle, a podcast from Durham University Business School that brings you the stories of inspirational Durham alumni from around the world. My guest this week is Asraf Yusar, someone who takes the concept of lifelong learning to a whole different level. Asraf is a learning and development practitioner and researcher based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and you can hear his passion from the first minute onwards for personal development as well as for helping others to develop too. Asraf's currently doing his DBA at Durham University Business School, and he also has an MBA from Imperial College London and a Master's in Social Innovation from Cambridge University. I think that might make Asraf one of the smartest people I've had on the show to date, and I must admit, I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with him. We cover a lot in this episode, from the value of lifelong learning to psychological safety and being able to make mistakes at work, and I'm excited to bring this one to you. So this is my conversation with Asraf Yusuf. Hi listeners, welcome back to the podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have our guest with us today. It's been a long time coming, but Asraf Yusuf, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Can we um, can we kick off by uh, giving us a bit of an introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Asraf. I am from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, professionally, I'm a learning and development practitioner as well as a researcher. So basically, I design corporate training programs, um, mainly in the, in the field of leadership. Um, I've been in the energy sector for 15 years now, uh, dabbled with uh, several roles in the past, business development, planning, branding, communication, um, stakeholder management, joint venture management, a few others. Um, so outside of work, I'm a father of two daughters uh, based here in Kuala Lumpur. I play a bit of music. I play a bit of football, although I'm not too good at it, but I enjoy playing it for fun. Um, that's about me, Chris. I didn't know you played a bit of music. That's good to know. What do you play? I do. I play the guitar uh, and I just play in the community orchestra that we have over here in Kuala Lumpur. So that's what I do on the weekend, man. <laughs> no, that's good to hear. Um, so what I want to ask next really is about your career to date. I know you've been with Petronas um, for around as a 15 years and you started yeah. um, as an analyst and you worked your way all the way up. And I want to hear about that if it's OK, uh, because I know a lot of the students that, that I work with anyway, um, they, they join companies as an analyst, um, you know, entry level position. And they have goals of working their way through the company. And you've, you know, you've been there, you've done it, you've worked your way to a senior position. So before I talk to you about what you do now, could you talk me through um, your career so far? Sure, I'm happy to. So I began my career with Petronas actually before I began working for them because I was studying um, engineering uh, at Northwestern University in the US back in 2002 to 2006 under a scholarship from the company. So I was studying industrial engineering. And upon graduation, I was placed with the petrochemical business unit 
uh, as an analyst in the strategic planning department. So basically, I uh, look into where the market is going and look into where how our products are faring in the market as well. Yeah. So um, being with Petronas, I've been lucky to be in an integrated oil and gas company because there, there's presence upstream and there's presence downstream as well. So after being in petrochemicals for a while, I've had my stint in doing government relations. I've done some part of our corporate social responsibility uh, unit as well. I've been in our gas pipeline management team. Uh, and now today I'm with the Petronas Leadership Center. And as I said earlier, my main job is to design training program for uh, leaders at all levels, uh, emerging leaders, mid-level leaders, as well as senior leaders of the program. So my career has been, although I was trained as an engineer in my undergraduate uh, education, I've never really spent a day as an engineer. Um, and uh, perhaps over the years, I've, um, I've been trying a lot of things as well, as you can uh, see from the range of stuff that I've done over the past 15 years. And to tell you the truth, Chris, I'm still exploring. I'm still exploring to really find um, where I can go deeper, but where I am today, the very fact that I'm doing it for my profession and I'm also doing it as part of my research in the DBA program at Durham, I think I have an idea at least now, perhaps learning and development is, is where I want to perhaps pursue further in the next 15 years or so. <laughs> it's interesting, kind of, you talk about your path. I think it's it's typical of quite a lot of people. You say, you know, you study engineering and you haven't done a day of engineering. Um, I think I think a lot of people do that, don't they? They go to university and they study a subject and then they'll go on and have a career that's something completely different. Which is what I always tell, um, you know, I go to universities a lot to give uh, talks. I'm an adjunct at two universities here in Malaysia. And whenever I get questioned about the job market from them, I always say that you never, never, never constrict yourself or never keep your view too narrow when you're trying to enter the job market. You know, those who do uh, mechanical engineering, for example, when they go on a job, job search, they specifically go for a mechanical engineering job. Mm -hmm. You don't find that kind of job these days, right? They, they are named quite differently. So, yeah. which, is, which is what I, I try to tell new graduates these days that... Um, 20 to 30 percent of those who uh, apply what they learn the other 70 80 percent are just exploring everything else <laughs> <laughs> I think it gives hope to people to be honest as well people who don't quite yeah. know what they want to do yet and it, you know it's okay yeah. to not know what you want to do you can figure it out as you go and your current role uh, why don't you give us uh, your current job title and tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at the moment <clears throat> The uh, Petronas Leadership Center is the training arm of the organization. So, but as a training arm, the focus here is on leadership competencies as well as business function competencies. What do I mean by that? Um, if you look into leadership, that covers on how uh, leaders play different roles as they grow into the organization. Mm -hmm. Leaders who are in transition, new managers who have just been given a team for them to lead or experienced managers who now have bigger teams to, to lead, or enterprise-level leaders who now have an entire subsidiary for them to lead, right? So as you can imagine, like different levels of leadership in the organization would need different levels of competencies. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the role of my team, I work with a group of instructional designers. So our job is to first of all, understand what the, where the business is going, what type of leaders the business need, what skills that, that they want, 
and then how do we close the gap between where we want to be and where we are today, right? Which is a difficult job because there's so much subject subjectivity in there. And there is also many interdependencies whereby um, you, how do you even train leadership, right? There's a great saying by the author Joe Owen who says that leadership cannot be taught, but it can be learned, mm. right? So <laughs> would that then negate all the classroom trainings that we do for leadership? Yeah. So, so, but the idea here is to look into developing leaders that uh, the organization needs to where we want to go. And like I said, I work with a group of instructional designers. We need to understand what the business needs. Then we design the program uh, the, uh, for the leaders. The proof or the evidence of how well or, or how badly we're doing is in how the leaders experience the program how they would rate the program, and most importantly, how they apply it back to the workplace. Mm. So it's pretty much what I do. Uh, I'm two years into the role. Um, I'm learning a lot from my colleagues, especially because they are quite seasoned in the area. But I'm having fun. I'm having fun because every day at the, work, at the office is a learning experience and an educational journey for me as well. So I'm enjoying it. It's good to hear about it. I mean, it's it's nice to hear that there is a program like that in existence. I think I think a lot of leaders um, in a lot of companies haven't necessarily had any sort of formal training or anything like that. There's almost, you know, this phrase, accidental leader, people who found themselves in management positions, but have no experience of it, no no training in leadership or management, but, you know, have earned the right to be there. And I think there's, there's sometimes a bit of a gap in companies uh, where they yeah. don't provide the training someone needs. Yeah, so... If we look into the traditional model of learning in organizations, right? Um, there's the Center of Creative Leadership, if I'm not mistaken, the name, and they came out with a model uh, which is called the 70-20-10 model, which argues that 70% of learning happens on the job, 20% of uh, learning happens via coaching, and 10, only 10% of learning happens from formal uh, form of training which is where we come in from the 10%, mm. right? Which, is make, which makes our job harder because whatever that we try to do in conditioning the leaders within a classroom setting, the effectiveness of that would depend heavily on their day-to-day -day basis, on their day-to-day -day interactions with their colleagues, their peers, and most importantly, um, the people, the managers who they report to, yeah? So if we look into the 70-20-10 model for organizational learning, you would see how important the day-to-day -day, uh, learning experience is in the growth of a, of a leader, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why it's important for organizations to create a conducive learning environment to enable a learning culture. And I think if we look into the movement of creating a psychologically safe environment for mm -hmm. people to express ideas, to exchange ideas, um, I, and I believe more and more companies are, are, are adopting that as well. So uh, it's totally true. There's not much opportunity in the 10%, but if the line manager is truly um, giving the opportunities that, that, that people need, I think they can still grow within the role. I like that you mentioned psychological safety. It's something we've mentioned on the podcast before. And if I'm completely honest, I've been in a situation myself, you know, where I've, I've managed to get myself my first management job and I'm excited to go. Um, but, but you're almost scared to make mistakes. You're, you're kind of aware that you're doing something new. You don't necessarily have the experience and it's your first chance of doing it. I think psychological safety is so important and having a culture that 
that kind of lets something like that thrive. It's really important for a new manager, especially. Mm-hmm. And especially for the young ones, when mm-hmm. you have new entrants in the organization, it's not unnatural to have differences in um, the way people lead. And generational gap is very real in, this, in, in the organizational context or organization setting. But if there's psychological safety, I think an understanding can be gained across these differences. And um, I, don't, I don't think it's something that's inherent on everyone, but through a authentic demonstration of psychological safety from the top, I think people would emulate and try to replicate within their respective domains or within their respective teams. Um, and it goes a long way, Chris. I think you go to the office with a peace of mind, you go to the office with an open heart to really maximize your potential. It goes a long way in really, um, yeah, pushing the performance even, right? Mm. So yeah, super important. Innovation comes from that as well, from my point of view. You know, you don't, you don't try exciting you know, new things if you don't feel you've got the safety to be able to do it without kind of rep, being reprimanded or something like that. And it's a good message for students, isn't it? Going into the workplace and their first jobs, you know, you're going to make mistakes and that's yeah. okay. People, people who think they shouldn't make mistakes, um, it's, it's a lot of pressure, it's a lot of stress and, you know, you don't really need that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's how we treat those failures or how we mm-hmm. treat those mistakes um, that would then f- motivate or drive people to then perform better, right? Mm. I always look up to leaders whose teams are always consistently want to deliver their best for them. Mm. From my observation, there's only less than three or five of them from my 15 years of experience in working where when I observe the team and I look at the leader, I can see that the team members are really genuinely trying their best in trying to um, deliver the expectations of the boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see they do that because they're given the freedom to really express themselves. It begins from the, the smaller teams that they have. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, it, it got from smaller team, it becomes into the departmental level, divisional level, and it becomes at an organizational level, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to emulate those as well. And, and, and I hope even with hiccups that I've had over the past few years, um, I hope I'm on the right track. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, like I say, innovations don't happen unless you're in a safe position to actually do things. I mean, this, this podcast is a good example. This podcast would never have existed if, you know, you didn't have the chance to take some risks and try something new. And if it failed, that would have been fine too. Um, you know, so I think I think that culture of psychological safety is really important. Like, So, so I mean, the next question really, you started off um, studying engineering, you, you then mm. began as an, as an analyst with the company you're working for, you've worked your way up. What was it that drew you to the area of work in the company that you're doing now? So you're obviously working with, with leadership and learning and people and things like mm. that. What was mm. it that pushed you in that direction? Um, I think observation, that's my answer. I've always mm. been so keen and curious of analyzing the dynamics between teams right so like i said the example i've given earlier right team members who are always consistently trying to give their best for their for their leaders um and and i've always i've i've seen the exact opposite of that as well mm-hmm. right so so over the years i think the area that i'm interested in, in is in people development or talent development because from the 
designing of policy or designing of training development program or designing of processes that you do, how do we then enable the organization to really then individually at least maximize the potential, right? Mm. So the observation, since I was a junior staff in the organization um, and where I'm now perhaps going into a, where I'm a, a, in, a, in a middle middle manager uh, position, right? Um, which is interesting as well because I'm seeing both sides of the um, of the organization. So it's so fascinating, and having a role whereby I can have a hand in orchestrating or designing how people at least when we look into the 70 20 10 model, right? At least in that 10 percent, um, I could sort of see how the design is brought to life in the classroom and later on when it's being practiced or being applied in the workplace. So the observation and the, my, my, my fascination with interpersonal interactions of people is what drew me to this particular area. And uh, fortunately, this organization has been um, uh, very kind in, op- in, in providing opportunities and I've been very lucky to be uh, where I am now. Mm. That's good to hear. Um, so I mean, I've heard you use this phrase lifelong learning um, in previous conversations. Mm. I've heard you say that before. I know it's something that you're really passionate about. So I mean, can I get you to explain what, what lifelong learning is and what you mean when you sure. say that? Sure. I think my love for lifelong learning is a personal one because when I was an undergraduate student, maybe down to my immaturity or just plain playfulness, I didn't do too well in college. I did graduate. (laughs) I did graduate, but I was a bit playful and um, I just couldn't wait to graduate. Yeah. So on the day of my graduation, my commencement speaker was Barack Obama. He was the senator at the time. Yeah, he was the commencement speaker and he delivered a beautiful speech, um, which is so inspirational. And I think everyone else in the hall except for myself, were really um, uh, gearing forward to really, you know, take on life, right? I just, I just made a vow on that day to tell that I would never step into a classroom again. I would never touch a textbook ever again, right? That was a vow that I made to myself. But five years, five years after working, you, you began to experience the monotony of the nine to five life, right? And I wanted to break that monotony and then I said to myself that I, I need to, some, to do something that is challenging myself. I need to face the biggest fear in my life. So I decided to go back to school, which is why I went to do my MBA at Imperial. Mm-hmm. And then that was a different experience because learning as an adult, uh, le- learning with a bit more maturity than what I had back in 2006, it's a different experience. Mm-hmm. I'm able to have more enriching conversations with my classmates, um, like beautiful conversations with my uh, faculty members. And, you know, you, you, you feel that you are a part of community where ideas are exchanged very, very actively, mm-hmm. right? So from that experience, I graduated with an MBA. Upon graduation, I felt empty because I didn't know what to do with the time that I had. And I felt an each or a drive for me to continue learning, which is which is what brought me to do a master's at Cambridge. And then I I graduated and found myself at the same spot of feeling empty and wanting to do something, and which is how I got into the DBA program at Durham. So lifelong learning for me is something that I discovered along the way. Mm. And I'm still discovering. It's basically somebody who has that yearning for knowledge 
who has the drive to continue learning. And especially in some cases, it doesn't matter if it's formal or informal. It doesn't have to be in a structured format. My problem is my lack of discipline um, requires certain structure and deadlines for me to then complete the, the learning processes that I do. So basically lifelong learning is a process where you want to continuously learn. Mm. It doesn't have to be formal all the time. It can be informal as well. And which is also a part of the research that I'm doing. So which is a focus of um, my research at the time. So my own experience drew, drew me closer to this particular subject. And now I'm trying to explore the literature to really understand what is this phenomena that I'm observing or experiencing myself. Mm. I'm just going to, um, if you don't mind, reiterate something in case our listeners have kind of missed what you just said there, really. We've always got this kind of how it started situation where how it started was you're never going back to school, you're done with learning. And where you are now, you've got, you're doing your DBA at Durham, you've got an MBA from Imperial, you've got a master's in social innovation, I think it is, from Cambridge. And it's pretty funny that you've literally gone from, I'm never doing this again, to being one of the most qualified people I've ever spoken to on this podcast. <laughs> So, which, which is also a lesson in life because um, I was so sure back then on that very windy day in Chicago that I would never go back to school. And just less than five years after that, I've proven myself to be so wrong. Mm. Never been so wrong in my life, right? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm. Being wrong, is, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. And... And I think I discounted myself quite heavily at that point when I was graduating um, uh, without really knowing the uncertainties of life that is to come, right? Mm. So, so I, and, and I firmly believe, right, Chris, that this, this um, capacity or, or competency for learning is just not something that I only have. There are many others out there and then what they need is just that trigger or that opportunity to really discover the learner in them. Um, that's my belief. Yeah. Mm. So how do you incorporate that um, in the work that you do? How can an organization, especially an organization the size of Petronas, how can, how can an organization like that adopt lifelong learning? And this sort of, it's a learning culture that you're talking about, isn't it? How can that be adopted by, by businesses? Yeah. The word culture in itself is something that's very, very hard to change. Mm. Um, and more so, a learning culture, which is a very um, behavioral aspect, right? Mm. Very hard to change behaviors. So if we look into the organizations around the world, the intent to nurture a learning culture has always been there. Mm. So you see organizations investing in online learning platforms, uh, investing in physical training programs for, for their staff, um, exposure for them to get attachments uh, for job uh, opportunities. So there are many formats of learning that happens in the workplace. So for me, uh, for organizations, the larger the organization, the more the opportunities are. That's, that, that's just very natural correlation, right? To me, it begins with the aspect of psychological safety that we, we spoke about earlier, right? It begins from the day-to-day -day experience that the individual face in the workplace. If he or she is given the space and room to really express uh, ideas, thoughts, even if, if, it, even if it's in, in disagreement constructively with everyone in, else in the room, I think that's a beautiful form of learning that begins quite naturally, right? Mm -hmm. 
So we begin from that form of psychological safety that needs to be adopted by leaders at all levels. Mm. That's where it begins. Now, when it comes to organizational learning, when it comes to uh, nurturing a learning culture, I just believe in behavioral science, whereby you just make it easy. Mm. And when it's easy, you make it easier, right? Mm. If, if, we've, if you've read uh, Nudge by Richard Thaler, the concept yeah. is just continuously making it easier because not, not everyone in the um, organization are natural self-learners. And as we have established, for us to shape uh, those who are not natural self-learners to become um, a self-learners, you can't force them. And um, so, so now the way to do it is to then make it easy. Now, we do also acknowledge that not all teams have the psychological safety level that we want, mm-hmm. right? So we need, if we do invest in online learning modules, make it easily accessible, make it easily accessible on your phone. Don't let them um, log in across two, three login names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, reduce the number of clicks possible for them to get from where the content is introduced to them mm-hmm. to where the content can actually be consumed by mm-hmm. them. Right. So my belief is just to make it easy for people. And when it's easy, make it easier, continuously making it easier. A very, very simple concept that is so, so hard to execute. Mm. You know, again, this podcast, I have an example of that exact thing. Um, Mm. This podcast is obviously for our students. We want our students to listen and get insights from people like you who've been there and done it. But I wasn't convinced that anyone would listen if it was placed on university platforms. That's why this podcast is on Apple. That's why it's on Spotify, because if you don't put it where people access it, they're not going to listen, you know? So that's, that's, I like exactly what you're saying. I I use that myself in my daily life, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, And and the cost, the cost of putting it on a public platform is so marginal, Mm. right? It's almost negligible from, from, but the, what you gain from that very small investment in putting it to public, um, you just need to be a bit more careful in curating the content. Yeah. Um, it's, it's massive, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I heard Richard Thaler on another podcast once say that when he's talking about nudge, you know, it's, it's not that people are dumb, it's just that life is hard. And I really liked it. And it is literally just about make things as easy as possible, as you say. And especially we work with students. We want they're already they're already doing their studies. It's already quite hard. Like yeah. make it as easy as possible for them to access. So they're they're not going to access it. And who would blame them? You know? Yeah. 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 It's quite yeah. a free one. So um, so obviously you're doing your DBA now. Um, you're at Durham. Uh, can I ask you? I mean, you've explained a little bit about why you you went to do your DBA. You'd already done a few mm. other things, and you're you know you're sort of filling a gap, really. But what was your motivation for doing um, a DBA? Um, why did you choose Durham? I suppose is a question I should ask, um, being a Durham mm. podcast. Um, and and what's it like? Sort of, you're not based in the UK. And what's it like studying it nationally? Um, it was a big question that I had on pursuing a doctorate, right? But I think the main motivation is possibilities because I am now in the corporate world. When I was doing my master's, uh, especially the one that I did at Cambridge, I was exposed to the world of research and the possibilities of, um, the endless possibilities actually of how research can really um, generate ideas and, you know, um, uh, really bring to the fore um, applicable uh, suggestions or recommendations on how we shape society, right? So 
I'm in the corporate world, there is this domain of the academic world that I've dabbled in with as a student, but I've not really went any further than that. So after getting my master's at Cambridge, I was a bit more confident with the academic writing, academic reading, and you know, consuming journals with big words and all of that. So with that amount of confidence, I felt that I was ready to then apply for a doctorate program. However, I could not afford to do a full-time program because I have commitments at home, my kids are still in school. Um, and so forth, right? And I still want to grow in the organization at the same time. So I was looking for a program that provides the flexibility in addition to the content, also the quality of the program, right? So there's flexibility and then there's a content. And then I was fortunate to also uh, be granted scholarship to be studying in this program. So that's, that's one uh, pool for me to pursue the program at Durham. So the... Now that I'm in a doctorate program, I think the, the possibilities are wider. If I do graduate in one or two years' time with a doctorate, then potentially the ability for me to explore um, extending myself into the academic world is a bit more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that, re that, that is really um, beneficial for me, right, Chris, is the ability to apply almost immediately whatever I'm learning in the modules that I get at Durham at the workplace. Um, there's room for experimentation there. There's room for me to exchange ideas with my colleagues. And then there, is area, there are areas for me to prototype or pilot, pilot ideas to see how they happen in the, in the real world context. Yeah. So, you know, I've been, I've been an advocate of part-time learning since my first part-time program with, with Imperial and then at Cambridge. Um, so I was ca just calculating the other day. It's almost 10 years now since I've been studying and working at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those are some of the things that attracted me to, to do the DBA at Durham. And I would highly recommend it to anyone uh, considering a DBA. And that's lifelong learning, isn't it? In fact, you said 10 years, you've been studying pretty much consecutively. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so what's yeah. it like? I mean, you, you've got a very senior position too. Uh, what's it like? you know, operating in a senior role, um, and it's important you do that right, you know, and, and focus on it, but also doing a, a, D, a, a DBA, you know, a doctorate level qualification at the same time. How, what's it like trying to balance that? Not even to mention family life in between. Yeah, I'm so thankful for my family for um, um, for the past 10 years where they've seen me study and, uh, you know, um, really trying to find my bearing even at home, right? But... <clears throat> I think what I was trying to do is find an intersection between what I do at the workplace as a practitioner and to what I'm doing in my research. So when I was able to bridge the gap between what I do at work and what I do in research, then it becomes a bit more seamless. Mm. What do I mean by that is that my job is to design uh, corporate trainings, right? My research is on measuring the effectiveness of corporate trainings. So whatever I'm learning at the, at the workplace on a day-to-day -day basis, it fits into ideas and also views or perspectives into what I'm doing for my research. At the same time, the piles of journals or papers that I'm reading from the body of literature on the subject of training effectiveness 
uh, specifically on transfer of learning, that's what it's called, mm. um, is feeding into what I need to do at my workplace. So complementing uh, work with study is something that I've been trying to do, even from my MBA. Um, my MBA thesis was on sustainability among sustainable, sustainable development among all majors, which is close to what I was doing at the time. Um, my master's at Cambridge was slightly bit different because my thesis was on education. Uh, but still, that's link on where the society that I'm in today. But today, the link is so close that they fit into each other. And um, even though I still need to uh, devote time for my uh, papers, for my assignments, um, I find that those two complementing each other is very helpful. And some of my classmates are doing the same as well. The subject of their dissertations are very close to uh, what they are what they are doing for on the on, on as, as a profession, yeah. Mm. So I think that's a strategy that many DBA students can adopt uh, to then make it easier as you go. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. It, it sounds it sounds pretty positive too. So like you're not saying that you've got these two separate things that are huge yeah. that you're trying to do. You've got two things that complement each other perfectly and. Mm -hmm by doing your, your work on your DBA, it's it's kind of contributing to the work you do in your day job too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky in a way because if you look into a PhD instead of a DBA, for example, which is a really full-blown research program, mm -hmm. um, then the room for practice might be a bit less if I'm doing it full-time, right? Uh, but again, um, I've been so blessed to be able to pursue my academic uh, journey while also growing my, my career, uh, which is why whenever people approach me to consider on a DBA, I'll give them like the whole picture of how do you then find a topic for research, you know, how do you then balance that with what you do at the workplace and, and mm. so forth. I'm loving this conversation, by the way. I mean, I think I'm finding a lot of similarities in what my experience has been. I, I, was, I don't want to talk too much about me because I'm not a guest, but I did my MBA part-time and I found that it contributed exactly to the work I was doing. Everything I did on my MBA focused on my job that I had and I could directly apply it. And a lot of the things that, that, I, that I studied, that I looked at in detail, that I mentioned, we've talked about on this, on this episode, which is really funny. So we, I use nudge. I talked about psychological safety a lot. I talked about culture a lot. So it's really, it's nice to see you have been on a similar, probably kind of higher level journey as I have. It's <laughs> uh, great because um, I, th I think we're just being practical, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got a family, you've got, you've got young kids, you've got to make it work somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing we always ask on this for guests on this podcast, obviously we want students to be listening to it. We've got students in the classroom now. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are listening to this podcast? Either students who are, who are starting their careers are about to finish their program and go into the world of work for the first time, but also MBA students um, who mm. have a bit of experience and are looking to take the next step. Mm. Um, I would give an advice to them just as I would tell myself uh, on the day that I graduated back then, 2006, which is to never discount yourself. Never discount yourself. In the past uh, 10 to 15 years of working and studying, I've noticed that um, I've learned to build a muscle of accepting rejection especially when it comes to applying for, for programs, right? Uh, or applying for jobs for that matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's better to get rejected 
after applying than not applying and not knowing at all. Right. And this applies to many things in life, right? And the, the part where you question yourself on whether you should apply or whether you, you should pursue something or otherwise is when you discount yourself. So never discount yourself when you go into the job market, as I said earlier, when you're trying to, to find um, a position for yourself, um, don't constrict yourself to the specification or the uh, concentration the subject that you are you're, uh, majoring in. Um, because skills are becoming more transferable these days. I mean, in an energy company, we are having software developers in there. We have uh, more IT people than ever here. And, you know, in organizations, there are even anthropologists. I think Intel has an anthropology team to just study how customers behave and react to, to, to products, right? Mm. So even if you're either you're in the social sciences or even you're in the hard sciences, never discount the possibility of going into the other domain because mm. as as technology is advancing, as, as organizations, as the world is becoming more global, basically, uh, skills are becoming more transferable and you'll never know the types of organizations that you might be working for, right? Mm. So very easily, uh, don't discount yourself. I also tell people to have two things, which is one, uh, empathy and also curiosity. We spoke about psychological safety earlier. Empathy might not be inherent to everyone. It's something that you can be built, however, can you, you can start from having awareness and then understanding and then from sympathy you progress into empathy that helps you build meaningful relationship in the professional world or, or even beyond right so that's mm. what empathy does. curiosity is basically helping you to become better at what you do mm. so in the workplace as we ask questions respectfully you would then be able to then, you know, understand the perspectives of others or find better ways of doing things that you're doing. So mm -hmm. don't discount yourself, empathy and curiosity. Mm -hmm. I hope that is uh, simple enough as takeaways. It is. <laughs> you know, one thing I found interesting, um, sort of self-reflection point, really, I think psychological safety is quite easy to see um, whether it's visible, whether it's there or not, when you're looking up. So if you're looking at your leadership, it's a whole different ball game looking sort of down. And mm. there comes a point when you when you're learning about things like psychological safety, it's really easy to complain that you're in an environment that's that's not giving you the opportunity to take risks and make mistakes. But the second you apply that to yourself and look at your own team and ask yourself the question, "Am I creating that environment as well?" That's a much more difficult conversation to have. It begins with listening. It begins with listening and acknowledgement. Sometimes in my own meetings, when we are doing brainstorming or meetings, right? Even the ideas from the most junior staff in the room, I will put that on the board. I will revisit those points. I will value and weigh those just as similarly as I would with the ideas who are coming from the more senior staff. Mm -hmm. Because when we take away our titles, our positions, I think then you will really value the, 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 the collective ideas that you can, the power of a team, mm -hmm. right? So, but you're, you're totally right. When we're trying, reflecting on ourselves, are we listening well enough? Mm -hmm. Are we cutting on people's sentences, right? Are we, you know, um, are we actually the loudest one in the room, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes I, I try to reflect on myself as well. And I think that's the value of feedback. 
we need to be able to receive and give it back effectively, which is something I'm really, really working on. <laughs> I'm yeah. bad at that. I'm bad at that. We're all working on, on everything, aren't we? We're all progressing, kind of trying yeah. to be better all the time. I think you summed it up really well, though. You had empathy in there as one of your points of advice, so it does demonstrate that you, you've kind of you've ticked that box too. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're aware of it. Um, listen, uh, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've been waiting a long time to speak to you, and it's definitely, it's definitely kind of hit what I wanted it to hit. Um, I know you've got your own podcast. Um, I want yeah. to give you a chance to kind of, can you tell us what the podcast is called and where, if students want to listen more about what it is you do, where they can find it? Mm-hmm. My podcast is called Staying the Course, Navigating the Challenges of Lifelong Learning. And what I do is that I interview individuals who have pursued lifelong learning in their lives. I've interviewed people who began their PhD at the age of 50, I've interviewed somebody who finished his PhD while working in a factory. I've interviewed someone who did a second bachelor's degree just for the sheer curiosity of it. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with it, but these are the fascinating stories that I want to bring to the fore. So you can just Google staying the course or just Google my uh, search my name on YouTube, Asraf Yusof. My website is asraf.org. Very, very simple. Everything is there. <laughs> and I definitely encourage anybody listening to have a look at the very least and check it out. And, and um, I think in the middle of this year, um, I'll be releasing a book, which is entitled Staying the Course, Navigating the Challenges of Part-Time Study, which chronicles the past 10 years in the form of the considerations that you make when you want to pursue part-time study, finding a purpose, uh, preparing an application, uh, going through the interview, balancing time, and then just going to your plans after you, gra- you graduate. So doing a bunch of stuff here, Chris. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing it right, but I hope I'm doing it okay. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. It's Nasrif. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Cool. Thanks. Thank you so much, Chris. I greatly appreciate the time uh, that you've given me. Um, really hope that I could return to campus soon once the pandemic had calmed down. Hopefully praying for that. Because I really miss Durham. Uh, <laughs> I miss the air. I miss the, the sceneries. I miss the sounds. Um, and thank you. Thanks again. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I've been waiting to speak to Asra for a while now. As I say, he got in touch with me off the back of the last series. And long-time listeners will know that I record this podcast um, in one series a year, really. So it's been a long time coming. Um, and I think, if I'm completely honest, I might have found a bit of a kindred spirit in Asra. A lot of the things we spoke about there, you know, psychological safety, um, empathy, uh, we talked about nurture. These are all things that I'm, I'm very interested in myself. So it was um, it was really great to talk to him about it and really great to, to have someone interested in the same things as me. But I hope you managed to take some of the points away um, that that he spoke about there. So, that, you know, there's this this point about not, be, not worrying about being wrong about what you do, being able to make mistakes and knowing that, you know, mistakes are part of the process. Mistakes are something that's going to happen as you go through your journey, whether you're a graduate going into your first role, um, you know, expect to make mistakes. Embrace the fact you're going to make them because you can improve and progress through making mistakes and as an MBA exactly the same that you'll progress through your career and you can build upon the mistakes you make and you can learn important lessons from that as well and then this this point at the end as well about it's better to be rejected than to never try at all you can apply that to so many parts of your life whether it's your job search and the jobs that you're applying for or just trying new things and innovating and, and you know trying to get to the next step in your career or trying to find new ways of engaging people and whatever it is you're going to do in the future 
As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's really appreciated. Um, I'm Chris Roberts, and we'll see you next time.